Welcome to the Michelle Miao Show, your A through Z, covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. We're here at the Commonwealth Club. We're here every Thursday at noon with my co-host, John Zipper. Uh, very thankful to John and the Commonwealth Club team for having this program. It's dedicated to bringing in LGBTQI thought leaders to the discussion about social justice and activism and also intersectionality. So uh, we're very, very lucky to be here. We have a great program for you, so thanks so much for joining us, those on Progressive Voices Network and those here at the Commonwealth Club. We have Dr. Aaron Belkin, who uh, is one of the founding directors, or you are the founding director, actually, of the Palm Center, which is a, uh, a, a research and I, I call it a think tank um, in terms of focusing on civil rights and equal rights. Uh, I was introduced to the Palm Center back in the day, so we, we can actually say this now, when we were fighting the don't ask, don't tell policy. Uh, Dr. Aaron Belkin is also the author of How We Won, um, uh, What We Can Learn From, I'm, I'm going to screw up your, that, your it's title. It's a, a long title. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. Progressive Lessons. Um, <coughs> go ahead. From, from the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. The book is actually just the title. It's so long. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. No. Um, and, and, yeah, welcome. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Yeah. Really, really a pleasure to be here. So, like I said, it's been a while since Don't Ask, Don't Tell has been repealed. And while the policy itself was very specific to lesbian, gay, bisexual, and even the queer community as it applies to if service members who are LGB or, or Q can serve openly, um, I think it, it, what it didn't do was specify how that impacted transgender military service members. I don't believe that there was an, an actual policy that banned transgender service members from serving openly. Um, however, there wasn't a policy that also protected transgender military service members from serving openly. And if I can recall, I believe the Obama administration may have started taking steps with the Pentagon to discuss the next steps for it. But uh, we didn't necessarily get there. And before you know it, there was a tweet that went out by our current president who put out a ban. I would love to hear your thoughts um, on how legal that is and just kind of you know, how far we've come and if you, in fact, feel like we are taking some steps back. Sure. So, um, yeah, the history is, is uh, a little different. There actually um, was a ban uh, explicitly, the, the Pentagon's wording was uh, outdated terminology. It was a ban on transsexualism. Uh, and then there was a separate ban on genital modification. And those two bans worked effectively to keep trans people out of the military going back decades. But that was a totally separate policy from Don't Ask, Don't Tell. So you're absolutely right that when Don't Ask, Don't Tell was repealed, um, trans people were, were left by the side of the road and their ban was still in place. And we can, we can talk about why that was. There were some tactical decisions uh, in the mostly gay-lesbian organizations uh, um, to, to leave our trans uh, colleagues, uh, brothers, sisters um, behind. Um, some would say for better reasons, some would say for worse reasons. Um, but when President Obama uh, uh, entered his second term, uh, there was a decision uh, made to review the policy, and President Obama lifted the ban, um, meaning that trans people could serve. President Trump, of course, has tried to reinstate the ban with, with every iota in his and his, Mike Pence's soul. Uh, they push really, really hard, and they keep pushing. But, but so far, this is one of the very rare areas in the rule of law where we are better off today than when President Obama left office. And the reason for that is that the courts actually forced the Trump administration to, to put in place one last piece of repeal that the Obama administration had left undone. So, so there may be future rollback, but as of today, trans people can join the military and they can serve in the military and they can get medically necessary health care just like every other service member. So the Palm Center put out a report kind of rebutting a lot of the myths that are behind this attempt to reimpose a ban. Um, could you go over some of them and, and uh, perhaps particularly which are the most important myths to strike down? Yeah, so that's a, that's a great question. You know, in, interestingly, aside from a, a, an obscure 1981 court case, uh, the Pentagon had never put forth an official 
justification for why trans people should be banned from the military. So they had a ban uh, without a reason for it. And that all changed on March 23rd when Secretary Mattis, um, following President Trump's instructions to tell him uh, how to ban trans troops, uh, issued a 44-page report that was uh, frankly gaslighting. The, the, the report is basically a 44-page uh, fabrication. Um, and there are uh, three main rationales for trans discrimination uh, in that report. But each of those rationales is undercut by the Defense Department's own data, much of which they conveniently, you could even say purposefully, left out of the report. So they only focused on what they thought was bad data, um, uh, and they left out all the good data. Thankfully, the good data were provided to us by, by uh, uh, allies in the movement, and, and we, we helpfully put that into the public uh, sector. But so the three rationales, yeah. So one is the idea that um, trans troops uh, undermine cohesion, that that uh, the military couldn't possibly have unit cohesion as long as trans people are serving. Well, within weeks of the report's publication, uh, Senator Gillibrand, uh, during hearings with all of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, asked each one of them, um, have you heard of any uh, cohesion problems uh, in your services? Uh, and they all said, no, there, there have been, despite two years of openly trans service, there, there have been no cohesion problems. The second issue in the, um, in the Mattis uh, in the Mattis gaslighting report, um, uh, how I refer to it, um, is the idea that there is quote unquote considerable scientific uncertainty about medical care for transgender troops. It is absolutely true that the military can't allow people to serve if they have medical conditions for which there is not a reliable cure. Uh, it, th th that just that just wouldn't wouldn't work, uh, uh, unless uh, assuming, of course, the, the medical condition is serious enough to compromise their their fitness, their ability to do their job. But there is an international medical consensus that medical care for transgender people is reliable, safe, and effective. And within days of the release of the Mattis report. You had statements by six surgeons general, the American Medical Association, the American Psychological Association, all saying the same thing, that, that, that the report was just you know, medically wrong. Um, and then the third and final rationale for discrimination um, is the idea that uh, somehow transgender troops uh, can't be deployed abroad because their, their health care is so mysterious and complicated. You know, they might lose their, their medications in a cave in Afghanistan or something like that. Um, but what the Pentagon failed to report, and which the Palm Center was happy to report, um, was Pentagon data that showed that 40% that of service members with gender dysphoria diagnoses um, have deployed abroad um, to the Middle East. And, um, and many of those were deployed after their gender dysphoria diagnoses, and only one person, one single person, had to be sent home because they, they couldn't uh, handle the deployment. So, so for the military, actually, 40% is a very high number because not all troops deploy. So, 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 so the report was, you know, it was a political uh, hack job, and, and, and I don't think it's taken seriously. I mean, it could still do great damage in court, but, but by, uh, in terms of kind of uh, opinion leaders and people who follow the issue, the report is not taken seriously as a real military analysis. When, when uh, Trump first started talking about doing this, um, there was, I don't know if it was hope or actual uh, anything based on something, but that Mattis kind of wanted to slow walk this mm -hmm. ban. Um, do you think there's anything to that, or does this report, you know, could he have let a bad report go out in order to make a weak case, or do you think he's changed his mind, or what? Or did he never not really think the other way to begin with? Yeah, we, we, we unfortunately, we don't have transparency into the senior echelons of the Pentagon, and, 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 and no one uh, outside of his uh, inner circle knows what's, what's in his heart. Mm -hmm. What I can say is this, there's been very credible evidence that we've seen that uh, he is a friend of the LGBT community. Really? There is very credible evidence we have seen that he is profoundly not a friend of the LGBT community. Uh, there is other credible evidence suggesting that regardless of what he wanted, uh, the Pentagon process culminating in this, this gaslighting report was pretty much hijacked by uh, culture warriors around Mike Pence. Um, the, the, the report does not read like a military report. It, it reads like a report of the Family Research Council. Um, um, but we, so we don't know. So perhaps Secretary Mattis uh, issued this report 
uh, uh, because it's how he feels, and perhaps he did it because his hand was forced or he negotiated, uh, uh, you know, tre treating trans troops uh, equally for something else. Uh, one of the things that was brought up about what we learned is the importance of, of changing or shaping public opinion, especially when we're trying to repeal something like, a, like Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Um, what are your thoughts on you know, where we're at with the transgender community and how we need to be doing more or what we can be doing different to shape public opinion about you know, transgender inclusion in the LGBTQ fight for equality. So you're talking about the military um, sector specifically or more broadly um, trans equality and LGBTQ uh, equality? Yeah, sure. I think that, you know, with Don't Ask, Don't Tell, uh, right, The you did a lot of, of uh, you hit up a lot of news networks and went up against the pundits and, and mm. did a lot of uh, arguments uh, for why we need to repeal Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And I think that with uh, transgender issues in general, so not necessarily just about you know transgender service members and the president's... Um, I, at this point, I mean, it, I'm just going to call his executive order... A, 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 it's just a tweet. I, I mean, <laughs> I'm going to reduce it to that. Um, but, but it brings up this big question. This isn't the first time, uh, using your words, we've left the transgender community, uh, you know, by the side of the road. And we've done that with employment, um, non-discrimination policies and, th and things like that. And so if th what we learned from the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell is, is changing public opinion in order to support what we need to do for the fight for equal rights, should we be doing more for the transgender community? And how do we do that? How do we get more people up on CNN and, and MSNBC, you know, to, to talk about uh, transgender rights, transgender people as human, um, and uh, bust those myths that transgender people cannot be deployed or even use the restroom? Yeah. So that's a really brilliant. Well, these are all really brilliant questions. And um, Kind of the the scholar in me wants to answer your question with a lot of zigzags and nuances. Yeah. Um, and then the advocate in me wants to say that the campaign to include trans people in the military is the public persuasion campaign, because when I'm, we're a very heavily militarized society, some would say for better, some would say for worse. I, I would say dangerously militaried. Setting that aside, in such a militarized society, when the public sees transgender men. Uh, uh, bulked up with their machine guns uh, in uniform in the Middle East, um, that sends a very powerful signal about equality and citizenship and, 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 uh, you know, and even the bathroom. Um, uh, uh, there's about to be a, a feature film about uh, Logan Ireland, who's a transgender airman who's deployed to the Middle East. And, um, and, and you, know, you take one look at him and you say, like, you know, he really should not be in the women's bathroom. Um, uh, and so part of the answer to your question is that, is that military inclusion is essential to public persuasion. All that having been said, there are a lot of questions that are not being asked now and a lot more things that we could be saying and should be saying um, just, well, the question of militarism is, is one issue, but, but just to give you a, a second issue more directly uh, grounded in LGBTQ politics, um, we're not talking about non-binary troops. The, the campaign right now is really for transsexuals, so people who were born in a girl's body and always known that they're boys or men, or people born, born in a bo uh, boy's body and who've always known that they're girls or, uh, or women. But we're not talking about uh, non-binary or genderqueer people. And even when the quote-unquote transgender ban is, is firmly emplaced and there are no more challenges to it, uh, uh, non-binary troops still will not be allowed to serve honestly and openly. So that's a, and intersex people are, are not allowed to serve in the military. So, so, so there are, are more conversations we need to have. The Commonwealth Club is a unique organization that brings together people from a variety of backgrounds to explore important issues as a community. Sooner or later, everyone worth hearing comes to our stage. From Marga Gomez to Richard Chamberlain, from James Hormel to Kate Kendall, leading thinkers, activists, politicians, and artists have come to the Commonwealth Club of California. Ted Olson and David Boyes came here to discuss their winning legal strategy for same-sex marriage. Jason Collins talked about gay athletes. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence 
discussed activism and good works. Actor and director Rob Reiner explained how he got Hollywood behind same-sex marriage. Barney Frank described what it's like to be gay at the highest levels of Washington. From healthcare reform to transgender rights, from immigration to gay-owned businesses, it's all at the Commonwealth Club. And that's still just a portion of the 450 programs we present every single year with new programming nearly every single day. Be a part of the conversation. Learn more at commonwealthclub.org, download our free app in iTunes, and join us in person the next time you're in San Francisco. The Commonwealth Club of California puts you face-to-face with today's thought leaders. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? (laughs) Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. And just to follow up on that, I mean, is is it that difficult to talk about gender and you know, sexuality with the military to, to, to further the education that it's not necessarily, uh, you know, categorized in just LGBT. And when we say Q, you know, I think many of us in the LGBTQ community understand that there's the spectrum of sexuality and the, even under transgender, right? It's an umbrella or trans asterisk mm-hmm. for non-binary, for uh, those who identify differently and it's always been the this discussion that we're we kind of take baby steps when it comes to gender um and gender education Mm -hmm. so in your opinion i mean is it that difficult to to bring that type of education to the military that will be a very difficult conversation to have with the military it was difficult to talk about gays and lesbians until it got easier it was difficult to talk about transsexuals, who we've been referring to as transgender people, but we're really talking about transsexuals. Now it's easier. Um, for non-binary people, um, you know, the military, military leaders feel very strongly that they need to manage people as men or as women. Even with the lifting of the transgender, transsexual ban, they're still gonna be managing people as men or as women. Interestingly enough, administratively, they're already 95% of the way to, um, to gender neutrality. Uh, jobs are now open to anyone regardless of gender. Many uniforms are unisex. Uh, in deployed settings in the Middle East, um, men and women live together in the same tents, share the same facilities. So they're already there administratively. There'd have to be a little bit of you know, new regulation for grooming standards, um, um, but not much. I think the difficulty is that the mostly male leadership of the military feels very strongly about the gender binary. I mean, it's been a, it's been the source of male privilege and patriarchy and sexism and, frankly, sexual assault in the military uh, for a long, long time. Not to say that generals favor sexual assault, but many of them favor male privilege. Um, and so, I think that that having the conversation about um, about non-binary identified troops will be a very, very difficult, uh, very difficult road, but but a conversation that needs to be had because if and when the military were to loosen its grip on the gender binary, that would have very important implications for civil society. What do we know about uh, the numbers of people involved that we're talking about, uh, both in transgendered and then some of these other categories as well, but specifically since we started off talking about transgender troops, uh, what numbers are we talking about? Yeah, there are different estimates, and the best estimate is 14,700 transgender troops, and that includes transsexuals and non-binary troops, but we don't know the breakdown um, because the Pentagon um, has not released the data. Um, The reason that's the best estimate is that for the first time ever uh, in 2016, the Pentagon included a question on a survey, are you transgender? Mm. Um, And so now we have official data from the Pentagon. Um, They reported that... uh, 9,900 trans troops are serving in the active component. The Palm Center extrapolated that number to include guard and reserves, and that's how you bump up to 14,700. Yeah, is there any assumption that there are people who are not saying what they are in order to avoid possible retribution? In other words, that those numbers could be higher? 
Um, Underreporting is always a possibility. Overreporting is also a possibility on surveys. This was a blind survey. Okay. Um, but but absolutely, this 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 might reflect underreporting. That having been said. The estimate is quite consistent with other estimates that were derived from completely different methods before we had actual data from the military. So I have confidence in that number. Well, it's of interest to me because, again, in your report, you t it talks about one of the claims that Donald Trump made was that the cost of providing medical care to transgender troops is, you know, astronomical. It's it's so much more, and uh, it actually comes down to like two point two million dollars. If I understood that correctly, yeah. So, um, which so the, over nine thousand people does not seem like nine thousand or fifteen thousand does not seem like a lot. So you can report the numbers in different ways. Okay. Uh, <laughs> the military spends six billion dollars on health care for the active component, and the military health system spends fifty billion dollars a year because military families are included and other people. Um, yes, uh, people uh, who oppose transgender service uh, released. Uh, reports, which pretends to be scholarly because they have footnotes, but literally <laughs> have no more plausibility than back of a napkin, uh, uh, estimating that, that health care for transgender troops would cost a billion dollars um, uh, over 10 years. And, and, and that was ridiculous. Um, there's a study in the New England Journal of Medicine before any of the policy changed when there was still a ban that predicted that, uh, that the health care cost would be Five million dollars a year, which is one one hundredth of one percent of the budget, the healthcare budget, and then another study by the Rand Corporation that came up with roughly the same number. Mm -hmm. Well, now we have actual data from from the first year of inclusive service. We don't have it from the second year, but during the first year of inclusive service, uh, trans healthcare cost two point two million dollars. The way that healthcare actuaries report numbers is the cost, uh, it's called per member per month. So how much money for each member in an insurance plan does a certain uh, treatment cost? And the answer in the military is that trans healthcare costs nine cents per service member per month when averaged across the entire force or $12.47 per transgender <laughs> service member per month, if you want to know. The bottom line is it's a rounding error, and the military yeah. spends $41 million a year on Viagra, and they spend a lot of money on, you know, olives for salads and curtains <laughs> and, you know, missing keys for, you know, pianos and stuff like that. And, and this, really, this really is not a, uh, a financial stretch as far as, <laughs> as far as the military is concerned. It's, it's, it's a rounding error of a rounding error. Yeah. Well, and also, sorry, it gets to a much more important point, of those, which is that, you know, for non-transgender troops, well, for all troops, there is a statutory right to medically necessary care. If you get sick in the military, you need care. The law requires the military to take care of you. That's how it should be. It should be how it is for all Americans, but uh, we're, we're not talking about that now. But, um, you know, other, other troops are, you know, are some, you know, some groups of service members are at high risk of heart condition or that condition or that condition, we don't ever kind of evaluate the merits of whether that group of troops should get care on the basis of the cost of treatment. That's, that's just, it, it, it's, it's blatantly transphobic to mm -hmm. even, that the president would even bring up the, 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 the financial uh, argument. I think that's the scary part. I mean, when we're fighting Don't Ask, Don't Tell, the scholarly reports were taken seriously, um, you know, by the courts, uh, by the people, public opinion had changed, by the media even, it was used, right, for arguments. But when you have a president who just disregards anything factual, uh, <laughs> I, I, you know, I can't help but for, for some of us feel like, hmm, that's why I opened up with, is it in fact a, you know, a step back? But at the same time, uh, LGBTQ organizations did react very swiftly in right, uh, uh, filing the lawsuits uh, mm -hmm. against the president. I don't remember how many lawsuits he, he are active in lawsuits now. Four. Four, okay, that's been filed against the president. So is that is that part of the strategy, the playbook? I mean, something that we've learned from our success as far as LGBTQ rights? Yeah, in, so in both uh, Don't Ask, Don't Tell repeal and also the campaign for transgender military service, uh, there has almost always been uh, a litigation component, uh, a lobbying component, a public education component, uh, a grassroots advocacy component. So, so all of those strategies have their places um, at different times in the campaign. And um, after the tweets, it was just you know obvious to the litigators uh, 
um, that, that, that to tweet away the rights of a community that's just been welcomed into the military um, is a violation of due process because there was no process behind the tweets, whereas there had been a year-long research process before inclusive policy was put in place. Um, it was also a violation of equal protection. So, so yeah, this, this is a moment uh, where lit litigation has been very successful so far. Um, you never know what's going to happen with these court cases as they move through the um, different levels. But um, for now, uh, the courts have issued very strong opinions um, telling the military that they are not allowed to reinstate the ban um, uh, for now. And this may seem dramatic, but my fear is that that's not working in tandem with public opinion. So because we have a leader at the White House who, uh, you know, just kind of represents something very different than wanting equal rights for everybody, yeah. while we may win in the courts, it may not necessarily mean we're winning uh, right out there in the public. Well, actually, so before the tweets, public opinion was roughly divided on transgender military service. The tweets moved to the polls. So now, depending on which poll, so definitely a majority of the public uh, is in favor of transgender military service, but sometimes the, the, the polls show um, uh, greater than 60% uh, in favor. Um, I, President Trump overplayed his hand. I mean, within days of his um, uh, issuing the tweets, uh, I forgot the exact number, I think it was nine or 10 Republican senators yeah. spoke up on behalf of transgender troops, people who've never lifted a finger for the community, people like Richard Shelby of Alabama who have scores of zero from HRC on LGBTQ rights. So, so people who've been you know, just terrible on our issues spoke up on our behalf and a, a former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff spoke up on behalf of transgender troops. Um, you know, that would have never happened in the early days of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. So. Um, I, I actually think that the, that, that, that the public is there and that, um, the, I mean, for the president, you know, the politics of this issue are good because his religiously conservative base loves to go after LGBT people and his racially motivated base loves to undo whatever Obama did. So this is kind of a two for one for him um, in terms of motivating the base, but the other 60% of the country was alienated by what he did. That's good to hear. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> How confident are you that the courts will be a bulwark against attempts to, you know, dramatically socially engineer from the right? There's just no way to know. Um, I mean, you know, we don't know what the composition... Well, first of all, we don't know what's going to happen at the district court level. Um, there have been... So the district courts, the four district courts where the, the cases are now have issued what's called preliminary injunctions. And, and the logic of those rulings is that we, the court, are pretty sure that the ban is unconstitutional. Um, and so we're going to prevent the administration from doing anything that would reinstate the ban until we fully consider the issue. But they haven't had their trials yet. And um, they haven't even considered other motions for summary judgment. So, so this is still at the district court level. Um, there's been a little bit of um, uh, signaling from the appellate courts um, in the first round of the litigation that um, the appellate courts will be um, supportive. But we don't know what the composition of the Supreme Court will be when the, when the case gets to the Supreme Court. And even if the composition is the same, you know, on the one hand, it's, you know, it's hard to imagine that Justice Kennedy, after the jurisprudence that has marked his career in favor of, um, of, of, of gay and lesbian equality, it's hard to imagine him kind of walking out the door, um, you know, doing a U-turn. Um, but at the same time, uh, this is a different issue. This is a military issue, and there's a question of military deference, and his previous cases um, had implications for trans rights, but they were really about gays and lesbians, not about transgender people. So we, you know, we don't know what's in his heart. We don't know how he'll rule in the law. So what I will say is that we've now had about two years of inclusive service, and every day of inclusive service is another day that it gets harder to put the toothpaste back in the tube. And so, you know, if four years from now, mm -hmm. you know, the, 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 the Trump, two years from now, sorry, that will be at the four-year mark, you know, the administration is still arguing, you know, look how harmful trans service is to the military, but they have no data and they have four years of policy success under their belt. Mm -hmm. it, it becomes increasingly implausible. And, and man... Uh, when we're looking at uh, uh, results of this, are there other countries, militaries, in fact, I think we've talked about this. I mean, Israel has, mm -hmm. has allowed this for a while, am I right? Yeah. I mean, are, are they looking at data in those other militaries as well? 
Yeah, 18 foreign militaries have allowed transgender troops to serve openly, including our closest allies like uh, Britain, um, Canada, Australia, Israel, most of Western Europe. Um, as the Pentagon was considering whether or not to lift the ban in uh, late 2015 and mm -hmm. early 2016, they commissioned a study from the Rand Corporation, which is the most prestigious uh, think tank in the nation working on military issues. And Rand went off and did a big study, including an analysis of foreign militaries, and found there had been no problems in foreign militaries. The Mattis report from March 23rd is now saying, oh, the Rand report is full of methodological holes, and their analysis of foreign militaries doesn't make sense. But, but, but the Mattis report doesn't include any data from foreign militaries showing that there's been a problem. So yeah. um, they just didn't like the answer that Rand came up with. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on on Facebook. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. On the Progressive Voices Facebook page, we update the stories that our hosts like Tom Hartman, Stephanie Miller, Bill Press, and Leslie Marshall will be talking about during their shows. And we share great news, commentaries, opinion pieces, and videos from all over the progressive world. Always progressive, always on. Be part of the progressive conversation. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. The Commonwealth Club is a unique organization that brings together people from a variety of backgrounds to explore important issues as a community. Sooner or later, everyone worth hearing comes to our stage. From Marga Gomez to Richard Chamberlain, from James Hormel to Kate Kendall, leading thinkers, activists, politicians, and artists have come to the Commonwealth Club of California. Ted Olson and David Boyes came here to discuss their winning legal strategy for same-sex marriage. Jason Collins talked about gay athletes. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence discussed activism and good works. Actor and director Rob Reiner explained how he got Hollywood behind same-sex marriage. Barney Frank described what it's like to be gay at the highest levels of Washington. From healthcare reform to transgender rights, from immigration to gay-owned businesses, it's all at the Commonwealth Club. And that's still just a portion of the 450 programs we present every single year, with new programming nearly every single day. Be a part of the conversation. Learn more at commonwealthclub.org, download our free app in iTunes, and join us in person the next time you're in San Francisco. The Commonwealth Club of California puts you face-to-face -face with today's thought leaders. Is there, a, is there currently a, an ongoing effort to collect data on gay and lesbian service members uh, in the military who are serving? I mean, just going back to one of the arguments, for example, was that if we did, if we do this, you know, military service members are, are just going to be one big gay party and they're all going to hook up with each other and not, you know, take it seriously. They're not going to be serious service members. And so just wondering after all these years, if the military has become one big gay pride party or not. Uh, we know the answer to that. Uh, no, the military yeah. has not become They're partying so hard they can't even do the research yeah, on it. That's really funny. Uh, no, it has not become a big pride event. Uh, well, they, they actually do have pride. I've actually, well, I believe the Trump administration is trying to cancel this year's uh, Defense Department pride, so I'm not sure what's happening this year. I've been to the previous pride events, but unlike the San Francisco pride event, the, the, the Defense Department pride event is a a few speeches in the courtyard of the Pentagon for an hour and then a band plays kind of a campy song and then it's done. Oh, there's a cake. Um, so <laughs> that's, 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 that's defense department pride. No, the, I, I mean more, you know, more seriously, um, uh, we did a, a very detailed study at the one year mark, um, a year after don't ask, don't tell repeal. And we used ridiculously, uh, 10 different research methodologies to, uh, find out if there had been any different, uh, any any problems with uh, including gays and lesbians, uh, field observations, surveys, statistical analysis, media analysis. I mean, just really deep research, um, published in a peer-reviewed military studies journal, and we we couldn't find any problems. And so, no, I I mean, no. It, anything I, to report? Not not even if it's bad or good or just anything well, interesting. Well, yeah. I mean, there was a lot that was interesting. I mean, I, you know, crucially. Um, Gays and lesbians, well, you know, a, a huge weight had been lifted off their shoulders, so it was easier for them to do their jobs. Um, interestingly and importantly, um, before Don't Ask, Don't Tell was repealed, if a gay or lesbian service member was harassed, there was really nothing they could do about it because if they brought the matter to their commander's attention, they themselves could be fired. So what's happening now is, so harassment has not disappeared, 
but it's diminished because when you get the first signals of harassment, the gay service member can take their straight colleague aside and say, listen, you know, that's unprofessional. Like, let's not, you know, make a big issue of this. And then that, that, that is usually corrective in and of itself. Um, so it's a lot easier to serve now than it was. So go maybe on a bigger picture or maybe a more focused picture on you. I mean, your specialty area of research is masculinity and, and, and the military. How did that become a focus of your research and your career? Yeah, I've always been interested in the military. And when I was uh, a kid, I used to have like a model airplane museum in my, uh, in my attic and, you know, read all the world book entries on war and stuff like that. And then in college, I just started studying the military mm -hmm. and never stopped. My PhD, um, just right across the bay, you can almost see campus from here, um, at Cal was political science, but but in essence, it was military studies. Mm -hmm. um, Were and you from a military family? No, no. I sure I would have lasted about five seconds in the military. Um, <laughs> well, so you I, or I mean, I mean, like parents or anything. Like uh, that. Uh, some some uncles and aunts um, oh. had served, and 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 actually, great uncles um, had died in World War II. Um, one was shot down uh, over Switzerland, um, um, which is an interesting story in and of itself. But. Um, but no immediate family members. And, um, and then I came out of the closet uh, right as President Clinton was trying to lift the ban. And people who opposed him were just saying the most egregious things uh, in Congress and in the media. And it was just like deeply offensive. Mm -hmm. And I was in graduate school and I just decided that when I became a professor, I would want to try to do something about that. So, yeah. 20 years, 20 years. Yeah, full circle. Actually, one of our first events was in the Commonwealth Club 20 years ago with your uh, then and also current CEO, uh, Gloria Duffy. Gloria Duffy, yeah. yeah. So wow, that is good. full circle. Good to be back, yeah. Uh, well, we do open up uh, you know, to the audience for any questions. So if you have a question for Dr. Belkin, we have a mic that we're passing around. Um, and just speak into it because it yeah. will air mm -hmm. on the show. No? Okay. Yeah, we'll keep talking. Okay. We'll keep talking about you. Um, I'd just love to get your, you know, your perspective. And, and I think maybe, you know, hearing from at least me, I always seem to be the most dramatic out of John and I. And uh, very I'm cynical. <laughs> I'm boring. And, and negative. And it just feels chaotic. And although uh, the communities have mobilized you know, together for a lot of these issues that we're, we're facing. So it's not just LGBTQ, mm -hmm. but many other issues. Uh, if we're going to talk about the government and military officials or, you know, let's talk about immigration and these issues and how as an LGBTQ person, those issues intersect with our identities. And all of a sudden we question, okay, what is an LGBTQ issue? Mm -hmm. So from, you know, somebody who does data from a, from a scholarly you know, viewpoint, how do you make sense of something when you want to talk about it from a factual point of view? This is indeed discrimination without getting into an argument with uh, someone who might say, transgender people should not enter the bathrooms because, you know. Cooties. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. I don't have a satisfying answer, and I can tell you that... Um, uh, in terms of, I, I mean, I think all of us are um, well aware and familiar with the notion that that oppression in this country works across multiple vectors at the same time, and they're intersecting, and people are, are held down and held back on the basis of their class and their race and their gender and their sexuality and their gender identity um, all at the same time. And, and from an advocacy perspective, um, some of the most brilliant voices in the community, to my mind, like uh, Dean Spade, um, really emphasize the importance of solidarity as as an advocacy tactic. That 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 an attack on an undocumented person, even if they're not uh, LGBTQ, um, is an attack on our community as well. An attack on one is an attack on all. Um, uh, I, I haven't heard him make that specific argument, but but in general, I've heard him make many arguments um, on behalf of solidarity as an as an advocacy tactic. I just didn't want to put words in his mouth, but 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 from the Kind of from from my lane, um, the advocacy that I've worked on, um, intersectionality and focusing on 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 those multiple dimensions um, would not be an effective tactic. And so so because we we don't talk about um, equality and fairness and democracy um, um, uh, at the Palm Center, we talk about what's best for military readiness because we're I mean. It is true, of course, that discrimination is unfair, anti-democratic, and you know, bad. Um, but 
that's separate from the question of whether or not it impacts military readiness. And that, and that conversation about military readiness is what is most persuasive to the folks who we've needed to convince. And it's also true that inclusion promotes military readiness. So, so we've not, you know, we've tried to make alliances with groups that work on women in the military and race in the military. And, and it's been really, really difficult to, um, to, to pursue a meaningful intersectional strategy, which, um, which troubles me deeply. And uh, I don't think that would be an effective advocacy tactic in our narrow lane. Go ahead. As a military scholar, what do you think about almost a, a shift in, in the attitudes towards certain military leaders in this country? And what I'm getting at is uh, Donald Trump comes in, presents a challenge, really, obviously, to the establishment in both parties and, and, and you know, in many ways, uh, traditional American democracy. Um, so you found folks looking to uh, Kelly, McMaster, Mattis, as if they were going to save democracy somehow, safeguard it in mm -hmm. some way. Whereas a lot of those same people would have been the same ones who would be like, oh my gosh, you know, we have to make sure the military is responding to uh, the civilian. Uh -huh. uh, and now you, you, you're finding more and more people saying, um, you know, well, I, I hope that person would not, you know, uh, carry out a, an order from the president mm -hmm. that was immoral or anti-democratic or something like that. Um, and it's a delicious question to get into because you can argue it for so long. But I'm, I'm wondering, uh, what's have you been watching that, and what do you think sure. of that change? Well, yeah, interestingly, um, I was thinking at the beginning of the administration that the military would be one of the most difficult agencies for the administration to corrupt and politicize um, because of the professionalism of the military and also the norm of civilian control. Um, is robust, but not robust to the point where uh, the, the, the president can just go in and order the military around as would happen in, um, uh, you know, in a country that had just experienced a coup or something, yeah. uh, uh, something like that. Um, now, that to me seems like a very thin reed to, uh, to hang the robustness of the democracy on, is the, is, is the military's willingness to, uh, to, to disregard unconstitutional or, um, or unlawful orders. Um, but, uh, you know, that was one of the, to me, like the saddest and most problematic aspects of the March 23rd uh, Mattis report, because up until that point, I think many, well, maybe even now, many people see Mattis as kind of the last adult standing in the cabinet, you know, the one person who doesn't just kind of kowtow to the president and, and who is evidence-based and, and who is there to do a good job as opposed to enrich himself. Um, and so for him to engage in, you know, gaslighting is yeah. really, and to just disregard evidence so blatantly is really, really frightening, um, problematic. Okay, I'm glad we're all in the same frightened state now <laughs> <laughs> on the show. And that's exactly what I'm talking about, um, just kind of going back and forth between, mm -hmm. we, we, we have the data, we have the facts, we have you know people like you who've done the work, and even top generals um, who have come a long way and then all of a sudden it just sometimes feels like that's being disregarded for, for reasons we don't know. We, we can't, we don't have evidence yet of the reasons why they would do something like that. Well, I, I just want to say, just sticking on this question of democratization, we're veering a little bit away from, from LGBTQ, but for, for, for what it's worth, I mean, I, I'm, I mean, I think a lot of people now are pretty worried. I, I don't really think the problem is Trump, although his yeah. reactivity is certainly a problem. I think the problem is his voters. Um, and they're not going away, and Fox News is not going away, and so now you have, you know, 60 million plus people who are happy to uh, ignore facts and remain loyal to him, um, uh, despite of or because of um, his ability to inflame uh, racial grievance, and 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 will allow you know any policy to promote the well-being of the one percent as long as they get the kind of racist utterances, and um, and that. I, I'm not seeing a way out of that. Right. Certainly right. because other people, other politicians now see that that block is there. And if yeah. they're unable to get to it through established means, that block is there. I, and that's how politics works. That's how power works. That's a power base. Someone will go after it. Well, yeah. And like the Republicans stole the Supreme Court. 
before Trump was president. The Republicans used the filibuster to block Obama from doing common sense things that the vast majority supported before Trump. So the Republicans were corrupting the democracy um, well before Trump. Hi, my name is Courtney Ziegler, and I'm the founder of TransHack, which is an organization focused on creating technology for the trans community and visibility for trans technologists and entrepreneurs. Tech is like the new industrial revolution. There's so many opportunities for wealth building and wealth creation. It's perfect for the trans community, which experiences strong amounts of unemployment um, and low wages. TransHack um, provides an opportunity for trans individuals to take advantage of the wealth creation that the tech industry provides. Um, it's a space in which people who are in charge of innovation and development, all these awesome things that we are able to use through technology, are paid really well for that. And so I think that trans people should definitely have their hand in, in that space and creating that. And so TransHack provides that opportunity. I got my first computer when I was 15 years old in the 90s, and it changed my world ever since then. And I went on to become an independent filmmaker who had to uh, not only write direct my own films, but also was kind of doing the technical stuff behind it, which is the editing and the capturing and all those things. I've always had this kind of tech-based background. I'm just very curious about a lot of things and just very fascinated about things that I don't know um, and things that can make me a better person. All of that motivates me. I'm just like, what else can I know? What else can I do? What else can I learn? Success to me means a number of things. I think right now in my life personally, it means waking up every day and feeling proud of the work that I'm doing and proud of myself. Just know what you want to get out of any particular industry. Um, it's not an industry that's 100% inclusive in the ways that it should be, in the ways that it's progressing towards. Of all types of people, in, in terms of creating the tech and the industry itself, building its infrastructure. Um, but that's also exciting in the fact that, like, um, people like me have a lot of room to change a lot of things and a lot of precedent to set, so, um, and that is the, the epitome of success. Spotlight on Success and Achievement is brought to you by Wells Fargo. Together, we'll go far. I'm sure of it, but, you know, and it, what if we shifted our, our campaigns and our focus on, um, you know, ideas or thoughts around what would happen, the adverse effect of if we allowed for these discriminatory policies to take place, what the military might look like then. Uh, does that actually work? Or would it? Would it? I don't well, know. well I mean, the military had a gay ban, gay lesbian ban in one form or another from about 1919 until 2011. Um, and we had a trans ban for many decades. So, so, and you know, banned African Americans and women at different points in our history. So the military is able to function um, even when it has bans in place. That having been said, um, the research is quite clear that um, diversity promotes readiness and treating everybody according to the same standards promotes readiness. So having one standard for one group of troops and one standard for, for another group of troops uh, introduces incredible divisiveness um, in the ranks. Um, and, uh, and, and the research is, 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 is very clear on those points. And so, you know, there's, there's even another dimension when you, when you ask about what it would look like on the ground, we don't really have military experience of inviting a group into the military and then two years later turning around and saying like, just kidding, you know, um, and then kicking them out again. Um, so, uh, yeah, this, the, I mean, the, I, it seems pretty clear that the reason Trump and Pence support reinstating the ban has nothing to do with military readiness um, or the troops or any, I mean they're you know they're trying to expand um, the culture war um, they're not they're not trying to do what's best for the military we talked earlier about how first the focus was on lesbians and gays in the military and in other social advancements and then later came transgendered what's next what are the or what are the future ones plural that, that uh, we should expect and maybe be working for? Uh, intersex people and uh, non-binary identified people are still banned from the military. And um, uh, well, it's not quite right to say there's a ban on non-binary people, but if you serve in the military, you have to check the box, I am a man or I am a woman. So what that means is you can't serve honestly as a non-binary person. And um, I, I thought it would take, 
you know, 15 or 20 years to lift the transsexual ban, which again, we're calling the transgender ban, and it, it crumbled like a house of cards. Mm -hmm. So I'm, you know, I, I'm thinking it'll take a generation to, to, to get non-binary people into the military, but who knows, you know. So as we conclude the program, I think one of the points that we can take away from the discussion is while we've had all these experiences of the military being at different points of discrimination within the LGBTQ, uh, P the LGBTQ community and people, for the transgender community and the current potential uh, ban mm -hmm. of transgender military service members, we have the tools and and we we know how you know what we've done in in history, in time, uh, I think it's a lot of it, a lot of it has to do with putting our heads down, doing the work, continuing to be positive, being out there, refuting, you know, the myths and the rumors and the gossip and the fear mongering and hope for the best, hope that the, the Supreme Court continues to rule in our favor using data and research. Yeah, and it always helps to speak up to your uh, to your representatives and your, your senators um, because the, uh, Congress does have a very important oversight role here. So, um, yeah, um, citizens can definitely uh, stay engaged, and, and, and it absolutely helps um, when, uh, when, uh, when members of the public um, focus on the issue. I, I, you know, one last thing to say about public support. The majority of the public supports inclusive policy for trans troops. They don't care that much about it, though. So, um, so, so one thing that happened when Trump uh, put his name on the policy is he really inflamed a lot of people to care more about the issue than they would have otherwise. So um, I, think, I think we're going to be okay in the end. Not as a country, but as, a, <laughs> as trans troops in the military. <laughs> we just got some optimism. <laughs> some sunlight on the horizon. John, any uh, last comments, points, questions? No, I just, I, well, I guess, yes. Um, I just found it uh, interesting, and it's almost obvious, but it, it still struck me when uh, looking at the Palm Center report on this and uh, saying that a lot of these arguments that are used against transgender troops are the same arguments we heard against African-American troops, against you know women in, in combat and all this kind of stuff. And it's like the same playbook that keeps getting almost like mad libs. Okay, you know, en enter the name of the group that, that somehow is going to destroy cohesiveness of the fighting force yep. and, and make a, you know our military impossible. So that actually, to me, would also support a sense of optimism of the sense that, well, we've also then got a history of breaking those down, those barriers down. So there was a really interesting study by a scholar named David R. Bianco, and he looked at the arguments used to oppose gays and lesbians in the 90s, and then the arguments used to oppose African Americans in the 40s and 50s, and he found no fewer than 12 similarities. So in the 40s, you know, whites won't want to shower with African Americans. In the 90s, straights won't want to shower with gays. So, so 12 similarities like that. I, I argue that, um, that homophobia and racism and sexism and transphobia are very different phenomena, mm -hmm. even though discursively the arguments look the same. Yeah. But what I think that, that, that Ari Bianco was picking up in terms of noticing the similarity is that what's underneath all of these exclusionary efforts is paranoia. And so the paranoia expresses itself in terms of the same arguments. And once a given group is allowed into the military, the paranoia has a way of attaching itself to a different group. Um, and so, yeah, we can be optimistic that we can show that the arguments are wrong because they're based on paranoia, not on data. But there is still the underlying problem of how and why the paranoia keeps emerging and, and re-affixing itself to different groups. He just destroyed the optimistic part. Sorry. <laughs> but we will get trans-military service, you know, enshrined for good. So we will. I didn't, I didn't want to leave our audience in, you know, such despair. The state that I'm in, one of my questions was going to be, so what if the Supreme Court went the other way? What if the military all of a sudden on its own decided that we will, you know, reinstate the ban even on gay and lesbian troops? Uh, well, they're not talking about reinstating the ban on gays and lesbians. If they could, there right. would be a huge public outcry. And r r the courts have prevented the military so far from reinstating the trans ban. Um, regardless of what happens, uh, when this political party is jettisoned from power, uh, any rollback that they achieve will be restored within five minutes, and it will have time to bake in, and then it will 
knock on wood, be permanent. So the, the reason that the Republicans have, have been able to get away with trying to reinstate the transgender ban is that President Obama, uh, his Defense Department didn't lift the trans ban until the very end of its administration, so there wasn't time for the policy to bake in. So, um, no, we'll, we, we will have fully inclusive service moving forward. <laughs> thank you for being fatherly here on the program, <laughs> <laughs> leading us to the way. Dr. Belkin, thank you so much for joining us here at the Commonwealth Club and, uh, you know, for being here, sharing your story, sharing your world and your work. Uh, the Palm Center, how is it supported? Is it something that the public can support? Yeah, I mean we're a we're a five hundred one c three nonprofit, and um, we we love money. So, <laughs> so yeah, and and we uh, need support, um, but we we get uh, all of our funding from uh, grants and uh, grants and gifts. And people can find you online where uh, palmcenter dot org. And and actually, uh, just about money, we we're actually quite frugal and small for uh, <laughs> for, a, for a think tank. So we will we will not uh, not, not treat your not treat your money badly. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us here at the Commonwealth Club. It's the Michelle Meow Show, your A through Z, covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. Please tell your friends, share with them. You can also find the program on the Progressive Voices Network. And soon, very soon, the announcement will be made. The TV show is moving on to a new home uh, locally here in San Francisco. It will be on KPIX Channel 5 and KBCW, part of the CBS family. And, uh, yeah, if you miss me that much, you can head to michellemeow.com, or we'll see you next Thursday, the same time, noon, with John Zipper. And, John, anything to add? You always, you always add incredible reminders of who's coming to the Commonwealth Club. Well, yeah, keep, uh, if you go to commonwealthclub.org slash MMS for Michelle Meow Show, you'll see some upcoming shows, including Katie Sowers from the, the uh, first openly LGBTQ uh, coach in the NFL, uh, Tam O'Shaughnessy, the uh, uh, widow of uh, uh, Sally Ride and Alicia Garza. I mean, it, we've got a great lineup, further fascinating people to talk to. So, Thank you. Thank you for joining us for our Commonwealth Club of California program presented by Week to Week, airing on the Michelle Miao Show on the Progressive Voices Network. I'm John Zipperer, and you can join us Thursdays when I co-host with Michelle before a live audience at the Commonwealth Club in downtown San Francisco. Join us for an upcoming program and find out more about the club and how you can become involved at commonwealthclub.org MMS. Many nonprofits rely on events to raise money, create space for community gathering, and offer opportunities to network. But how many hours in a day do community leaders have when they're busy changing the world? Imagine your next event, gala, festival, or celebration professionally executed with creative ideas and ideals to match your community service. IDK is the community's trusted event production company. Visit idkevents.com for all your event production needs. Hi, I'm Chuck Spence. I'm the owner of the Maui Sunseeker LGBT Resort, and I'm also vice president of Maui Pride. It's not just the only LGBT resort in Maui, it's the only LGBT resort in all of Hawaii, which is really kind of amazing. Maui Sunseeker actually started years and years before I even got involved. I came along as one of the owners a little bit later in, in life. I came to Maui back in 1978 and absolutely loved the island. I fell in love and I thought, this is where I want to live, this is where I want to be. And so from 1978 until 2008, I finally came alive with the dream and bought the Maui Sunseeker because I realized that this would be the next step in my life and um, thought that this would be an ideal situation because I could do something that, that was my own business rather than making money for other people. It's important to have a place where you know you can feel comfortable about yourself, you can feel loved, and you can feel welcomed by everybody. And I think that that's the ambiance that we try to create. And, and that's the message that, that we try to deliver in all of our ads and trying to bring people to Maui, is that you know we're not just an experience on Maui, we're an experience of Maui. When you think back years ago, how closeted we used to be, and you think about how suppressed we were back then to how open and accepting we are now and and it's it's a good progression for society it's good that people 
are, are not just you know, tolerating, but appreciating diversity. And that's the message, is that we really need to make sure that, that people appreciate diversity. I think that whoever you are, follow your passion. Follow what you believe in. Follow whether it leads you down the path of art or whether it leads you down a path of business or you know, some other aspect of internet creativity. Um, follow that and, and just be passionate about what you do. Spotlight on Success and Achievement is brought to you by Wells Fargo. Together, we'll go far.